welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Sarah Fletcher with the Innovation Support Unit, and today you're going to hear the Team Up webinar that was held on February 18th, What Do Teams Have to Do With It?, focused on high-functioning teams in team-based care. Dana Hubler and Rahul Gupta gave an engaging presentation that explored the impact of high-functioning teams on patient and provider satisfaction, retention, and patient outcomes, shared elements that foster high-functioning teams, and described the Quality Team Coaching for Rural BC program. I hope you enjoy this presentation as much as I did. Welcome to our sixth webinar in the Team Up Learning series. My name is Kelly Giesbrecht. I'm a leader with the primary and community care team at the Council and I'll be your host and facilitator today. I am joining from my home office located in Prince George, where I live, work, and play on the unceded traditional territory of the Kletli Tanay. I welcome you to take a moment to recognize the traditional territories where you are situated and share this in the chat box if you like. I also wanted to take a moment to mention that PD, my colleague at the council, is our technical support today and to thank Sarah from the UBC Innovation Support Unit for monitoring the chat box for us today. So as of Tuesday, we had about 180 people registered for this webinar, which is fantastic. And we have folks joining us from every health authority, including the PHSA and FNHA. And we have a really diverse group of folks joining us from all team-based care roles. And without further delay, today we are honored to be joined by Raul Gupta, and Dana Hubler to speak to us about high-functioning teams for advancing primary care. Rawl works as an integrative medical physician, professional coach, mindfulness instructor, and advocate for provider wellness. He's a certified MBSR teacher through the Center for Mindfulness and facilitates mindfulness-based interventions for both providers and patients. He is also a somatic experiencing practitioner and integrates trauma-sensitive approaches into all of his trainings. He has over 18 years of experience being an ICF certified professional coach, supporting leaders, and more recently, teams in cultivating compassionate self and situational awareness. Rawl is a clinical assistant professor for the UBC Department of Family Practice. Donna Hubler was born as a settler in the traditional territory of the Shinshan Nation and is now raising her family on the lands of the Comox Nation. As a family physician and as a citizen of this country, she's committed to doing her part to create a kinder and more equitable healthcare system. As a rural family physician, team-based care has been a matter of survival and a source of joy. When at play, you can find Dana growing food or flowers, hiking or whipping up some yummy food for her family. And I'm now going to hand it over to our speakers. Thank you so much, Kelly and Katie and team for having Roll and I here. And we're really excited that there's people out there that are interested in what we've been up to. So thanks for joining us. This work is what we have had the catchy title of QTC for RBC, which is Quality Team Coaching for Rural BC. And it's really about, as, we, as the slide shows, cultivating a culture of support and learning and quality for rural BC healthcare teams. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about where it came from. And so Nancy Humber, who is a physician in Lillooet, 
really brought this forward, recognizing that we're asking rural healthcare teams, teams in general, but rural healthcare teams is where she was, her lens was, to work in different ways with PCN to do more, but maybe not with always starting with how people work together and how do we support our teams to be high-functioning teams. We just load more onto our team's plates, but maybe don't look at how we can really establish a solid foundation for those teams to start to do more. And so just really wanting to acknowledge the vision that Nancy Humber had for this work and that then Raul and I have had a chance to be a part of in in building. So with that, I I am on Comox and Pentletch land. I'm very grateful to be here joining from that land and I'm going to turn it over to Raul. Thanks, Dana. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here as well, co-facilitating with Dana and with the team that's been really supportive of this presentation. I'm joining and very grateful to be joining from the unceded and ancestral lands of the Squamish and Seashelt nations. And um, perhaps just wanted to also take a few moments to share some of the acknowledgements of a whole lot of different people that have been involved with this initiative. As Dana was mentioning, the Joint Standing Committee on Rural Health Issues has really been the source of the funding and the Rural Coordination Centre of BC has operationalized this training. And uh, lots of people there have really supported us. Some of those people are on the steering committee, including Adrian Peltonen from RCC, Anton Meyer, and Nancy Humber. Dan had mentioned two physicians, as well as Megan Delf, one of the nurses in the in a rural community as well that's joining Dan and I on the steering committee. There's also an advisory group that we've been involved with, with the purpose of trying to get perspectives from different areas of the system, whether it's patient perspectives, different organizational perspectives, perspectives from different healthcare providers and allied healthcare providers as well, really to hopefully support us in making sure that we are providing an inclusive and thoughtful approach. And then we have a working group. Dan and I have been both part of that in terms of doing some of the research initially around a literature review and then designing some of the program along with uh, a physician coach, Cecile Andrea, who is one of the facilitators for the program alongside myself. And then both Adrian and Tracy Delu from the RCC have been instrumental really in helping us roll this out and coordinating with the different um, communities that we'll be uh, working alongside with, as well as just really all of the administrations that happens uh, behind the scenes. And then finally, just to share that we are really hoping to learn a lot from this on a bunch of different levels and have been engaging Marla Steinberg to do an evaluation of the program itself. So I'm going to head it back to Dan and maybe just share a little bit about our guiding principles. Yeah, so we, we I just wanted to share some of the things that really have been behind us as we, as Raul and I went to the literature, what the evidence was. And so some of the things that really have guided this is that we, behind all of this, it needs to be safe and it needs to be culturally safe and that there's a trauma sensitivity built into this. We tend to think of trauma-sensitive care and trauma-informed care when we're working with our patients and our clients, but we really wanted to embed and change the culture so that we think about trauma sensitivity in how we are with each other as colleagues. And so behind all of this, we have built in that, that belief in cultural safety and trauma sensitivity needs to be behind all of the work we do as team members. We've also really tried to look to the work of positive psychology. So rather than always 
looking at uh, what doesn't work and looking at pathology to really look at the, what the best, the best of us can bring. And when we have that appreciative approach, what happens in teams when we work at it from that way? We definitely look to the evidence and that there is evidence, some of it for, for really specific in interprofessional rural teams. It was sparse and we did have to look quite wide in the globe to find it, but we did find it. And, and that the evidence-based nature of the work that we're going to present to you that we're rolling out in rural BC is there. And then we really wanted it to not be uh, a one-off where people sit behind a screen or sit in a room and have a didactic experience uh, of what it is to be a team. We want the we wanted the learning to be experiential where people had a chance to play with new tools, to experience new tools, and then and it for not to be a one-off. So you'll see in what we've built out here that there's a longitudinal element so that it it isn't a one-off experience so we're actually trying to embed this in the way people do work and there's some longevity to it and then one of the things that we certainly saw from the evidence is that leadership involvement is critical so you can work with a team and they can have an amazing uh, experience together they can have amazing shift in their mindsets about how they want to be together but that's very hard to make that into something that that lives and has wings and continues to grow without leadership involvement and so that's one of the things that we've really when you come to this the QTC for RBC when people have come with their applications we really need to see that leadership is involved and how leadership is involved so that they can support the, the changes that the team is making. Thanks, Dana. And so just to maybe share a little bit about what we discovered from the evidence in terms of just why we're doing this in the first place, the impact of really supporting our teams to be functioning at their highest level. And so I'll just invite you to notice some of these different features as you look at that, you can see some of them really have to do with the patient experience, whether it's decreasing errors in terms of medical ex experiences, increasing safety, missing less care opportunities, reduced mortality. So there's really a clear impact on patient experience, but there's also an impact on individual health healthcare providers. So increased job satisfaction. There's an impact on the team. So teams actually um, can work better together and also, in fact, enhance performance. And then there's also an impact on the system itself. The evidence has been pretty clear that when teams function well, they're in a much better position to adapt to our continually changing landscape. And with that greater adaptivity, far more likely to anticipate developmental needs of a system of an organization. And therefore, just like we see with uh, the pandemic, have the opportunity to really adapt on the fly. And uh, that's perhaps the reason why we've really worked hard to make this training uh, robust to see if these very impacts could can occur in rural health settings. When we did the literature review, we organized what we uncovered into eight elements. And so I'm just going to take a few moments to describe them to you. They are organized according to how they unroll in the training. So if you look at the top left, you'll see the two self-awareness and well-being and situational awareness and adaptability as two elements. And um, sometimes people will wonder, well, why is self-awareness and well-being here as part of a team? And what we're seeing in literature is that the better we can take care of ourselves, that actually does influence our own physiology. It influences the degree to which 
we can keep ourselves out of some of the survival physiologies of fight, flight, or even freeze that can actually make us less social, make us less geared towards collaboration. And so it's actually critical if we learn how to take care of ourselves and therefore support other people on our team to do the same thing. And that also opens up to us to notice what's going on around us. How capable are we to see uh, the changing landscape and therefore adapt based on what we're experiencing? And then if you keep moving to the along the line here, we'll see the next two are psychological safety and supportive open flow of communication. And these two are also paired in the training. So first with psychological safety, you could think of this really as the degree to which a person feels safe on a team to take risks, to take interpersonal risks. And so this is more of a felt experience. And this is something, again, that's going to be iterative and it's going to depend on a lot of different factors. And then supportive open flow of communication, what the literature was referring to is you know, the idea that people will actually push information, that you don't have to pull it out of them, but there's enough psychological safety and enough goodwill within the team that people will freely offer counsel, freely offer information that's going to make a difference to decision-making, to projects and their outcomes. And then if moving along, if you look on the bottom left, you can see the two empowering team infrastructure and learning culture. And again, these are paired together in the training. So first with the empowering team infrastructure, this refers to, it's actually a term we coined to capture what we saw in the literature that was referring to patterns, to behaviors that a team might make, to agreements that a team has with each other about how they're going to be and how they're going to function. And that even having reinforcing behaviors that actually help build the team cohesion is a key part of this. A learning culture really is that culture where we welcome and embrace mistakes if we even want to use that word, but actually seeing anything that happens as an opportunity for us to uh, be open, to be curious, to learn essentially together. And in fact, the very, the very training itself, what we saw in the literature is teams that actually come together, multidisciplinary teams or interprofessional teams that come together to learn, that itself is going to embrace a culture where we uh, are choosing to learn together. Another part of this is that we are keen to measure change, that we're looking for ways to be able to document uh, the effect of our change and therefore be able to have a continual improvement cycle. And then finally, the last two elements, one being shared commitment to values, roles, and goals, and also shared leadership. So just a few words about these two. What the literature was referring to with shared commitment to values, roles, and goals is shared mental models. This idea that if we can all, in a sense, be having the same language and the same way that we frame the reason we come to work, what our mission is, and what is our specific role within this team, and what are the values that we can honor as individuals as well as a collective. And that actually makes a huge difference. It actually does help build that sense of commitment when we feel that well aligned. And then finally, shared leadership, it's really a call out to a shifting, evolving understanding of what makes for best leadership practice. And I think we can see a real shift where, especially in a complex system, we really need to access the wisdom across the whole team. We need to find ways to not only empower certain individuals, but that everybody on the team feels empowered around their particular role and may in fact have some role in decision-making around certain parts of where the team goes. And it's a sense of really being able to share and distribute some of the leadership functions across the team. And we're going to say more about this uh, shortly, but this can be a tricky and challenging part for leaders because it's calling us to 
you know, change some of our kind of beliefs around what good leadership actually is, and even potentially what's good for us as leaders, because I think the traditional style may actually make it a lot more difficult for leaders to experience success. Anything you want to say, Dan, about this before we move on? Okay. So this leads to really the design of the workshop. We really wanted to have the kind of the modules, if we can call it that, be designed around building competencies. And so if you look on the top left, the first competency is around building self and situational awareness. And that itself actually can support us experiencing psychological safety if we can really start to understand our own physiology and how we're doing and understand the experience of others and bring a compassionate lens to both ourselves and others. That has a way to dampen some of our stress responses and actually put us in a more pro-social state where we have the choice um, to make, to move forward in, in ways that are, are, are helpful. And then a second competency around supportive communication, really learning how we can stay curious and listen to each other's experiences, as well as share our boundaries with each other, share our needs and concerns in a way that actually bring us closer together rather than creating more silos and fragmentation. And then a third competency around peer coaching and really the skill of being able to support each other and be supported through learning how to bring some coaching paradigms and ways of being that can actually empower us, empower each other and create this, hopefully this culture of mutual support and learning. And then finally, a competency around a shared mental model. And so through the training, we actually take the time to explore ways of co-creation, ways of really working together to clarify, you know, what exactly it is that we want, how it is that we're going to be together, what specifically are going to be our roles, why are we doing this in the first place, what is the deepest purpose and mission that we might um, define for ourselves, and hopefully find a way to really have the team itself feel very empowered. So we wanted to come back to just maybe sharing a few examples of some of these elements, just so you can maybe see them. Uh, through a few stories. Maybe, Dan, I'll, I'll pass it over to you maybe to start that process. Yeah, and so I just wanted to speak to this and, and share share a story and share a little bit that, that came from some of the evidence around this. And go to the, the uh, Google. And Google put a lot of energy for several years into looking at why some members of their team functioned at a really high level and why others maybe didn't. And what they chose to do was look at about 250 teams. And I think they looked at over 50 elements of, 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 of team function. And they looked at everything. They looked at, okay, maybe this high functioning team, it's because of the composition of the team. Maybe they have more people in this, or maybe they have more diversity, or maybe these people were friends before, or maybe they spend more time socializing outside of it, just looking at everything. And what they found across the board in this project that they called Project Aristotle, coming from Aristotle's is quoted as being saying, we are more than the sum of our parts. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. Um, what they found was the number one thing that made a difference to high functioning teams was whether there was a perception of psychological safety. That was the overarching. They found other things that certainly were important elements, but that psychological safety was critical. It was there in every high functioning team that they studied. 
And I just wanted to share a story of, of what this can look like. So I, I often think when I think about psychological safety, I think of Dr. Doug Cochran, the former chair of the BC Patient Safety Quality Council, pediatric neurosurgeon, and he talks about psychological safety with this story. And what he came to understand about it was when he would walk into the OR in the morning and the team would say, good morning, Dr. Cochran. He would feel a bit nervous that day going into the OR, going into that case. If the team said, good morning, Doug, he felt a little bit more comfortable. He felt a little bit more safe and confident about the case and how the OR may unfold that day. If he came into the room and the team said, good morning, Dougie, he said he came to understand that he could just take a big sigh of relief because if someone saw something on the monitor, if saw someone saw something changing in the situation in that OR, he knew that people were going to feel safe to speak up and therefore he felt more safe and they had better outcomes as a result. And so I, that story just always really sticks with me about the importance of psychological safety. Just as people are doing that, I'm noticing in the chat box a comment that one of you have made around David Cool the saying hurt people. And I think that really does speak to what some of the elements we're describing here around self-awareness and well-being. If we, a huge part of this is taking care of ourselves so that we are much less likely to hurt others. And that's, that's a really important part here. And I'm glad I love that, those words, because I think that really speaks to the importance of that inner work. And again, supporting each other to, to heal really is what we're exploring here. And then relationship with self, then team, and only then with patients. I think that really, I, I love that in the sense that I, I think it mirrors what we're trying to explore here is even in terms of the process of the design, where uh, we really begin by exploring our own wellness and then gradually working it to the team itself. And then hopefully from there, trusting that's actually going to have an impact on the experience of our patients. So in 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 having conversations with some of the rural teams as they were contemplating whether they would apply for this or whether they would apply for other quality improvement projects. The, the, uh, one rural team that I was supporting in that decision-making process, they were really thinking that they start with a quality improvement project. They were going to work on cultural safety and they really wanted to dive into that. And as we had more conversations, the place that they came to is, wow, we're actually not very safe with each other as a team. We sometimes don't speak very kindly to each other. And maybe we need to start there. And then once we're speaking kindly and we're safe with each other, then I think we'll maybe start to tackle cultural safety. And I don't think it has to be an either or, but I think it was recognizing that, that being kind within the team gives you an opportunity to grow into other places of kindness and high functioning. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on. I see we have probably about five more minutes to to complete. So I'm just going to say a few words about the overarching, or the, sorry, the journey of QTC. So just to give you a sense that it begins with essentially six modules. And we transitioned from it being a day in-person program to being online. So those can happen either weekly or twice a day over the course of three weeks or even once a month. And so you see those team workshops two to six. Then after that, I would call the next part more pure team coaching, where really the team gets to um, decide what's going to be of most value for each of these sessions to support change. And again, this comes back to what Dana said around really longitudinal support. A lot of the evidence showed that unless you have that longitudinal support, it's actually really difficult to make lasting change. 
And then speaking to moving along this path here, it's not actually a linear path, but just to give you a sense of the different features, recognizing that being in a leadership position is tough. There's often a lot of responsibility on leaders, and that's often from the expectations of team members. Some of it's self-inflicted that we might even carry if we're in a leadership position. And so actually trusting that we can actually get a lot more support and maybe lose a bit of control, that's not an easy thing for anybody to step into. And recognizing it can be challenging, part of the program actually involves leaders, uh, involves offering leaders some one-on-one support with uh, the coach to help navigate some of those changes and really hopefully support the team through that support. And then finally, each of the communities that have been successful in the application have access to some extra funding. That funding can then be put towards any particular extra training that the team might deem uh, valuable. So for instance, if a team realized, wow, we really want to take a deeper dive in team mapping or around optimizing our communication or cultivating our self-awareness, then there's funding there. There's also a bunch of different options that we provide, as well as uh, giving teams the option to choose others. We provide some support through QTC for the teams around navigating some of those trainings as well. And that can include quality improvement projects. So if the team, that itself can be a wonderful team building exercise and there's support through our team. We have some wonderful QI advisors that can support teams in that journey as well. So we just wanted to talk a little bit about the eligibility for this program. So this is a pilot project. We we are in the phase where we're gathering evaluation um, data to see how this works. And we have, we are full, and these are the teams that were eligible to. So any rural healthcare team, we did give it, certainly had some prioritization so that we we could choose the teams that would fit best with, with the vision for this work. And so really looking at those communities that are more geographically remote, who are working with populations that have been affected by inequities or, or have complexity in their healthcare, really focusing on interprofessional teams. So there were some we would have considered if a, a, a single, like let's say a group of physicians came to us and had a very good reason why they needed to work just as a single profession, but our preference and our strong support was interprofessional teams. And I think, in fact, that's all the teams that were working with now are interprofessional. And then again, having that commitment to leadership participation, not just leadership supporting it, but leadership actually participating in the training is how we vetted the process. And I just want to talk a little bit about the application process, not because it matters to this group necessarily, but just because we really tried to focus, make sure that our process, as well as our program was walking, walking the talk. And so that was that anyone can be a point of contact. Anyone could apply. It wasn't just where the established leaders would be, the hierarchies. We were really, if there was someone who maybe uh, isn't in an official leadership role, but really saw the, the value of this, that they could be the point of contact and they could lead the application. We really wanted to know the why rather than the what. What does your team want for yourselves as a team? We wanted to make sure that everyone was really committed and that we really wanted to make it so that to be equitable, we weren't we weren't just making it so that the people who had someone on point who was a really good, good application writer got it. We wanted to make sure that we supported and encouraged people along the way so that we were had as equitable of a process as we could. Great. And then we just have one or two final slides as far as context, just to share. We are doing an evaluation on this with the support of Marla Steinberg and really 
exploring the impact on a few different levels. Uh, so the impact on the training for the experience of the healthcare providers and the, the team members, the impact of the learning of the different skills and comp uh, competencies, and then the impact in terms of the functioning of the team, any kind of behaviors that are coming from the team through the training, and of course, the quality of care for patients. And then also wanting to evaluate the program itself in terms of what facilitates team-based care in the first place, what needs sustaining in terms of ongoing support that communities might need so that we could hopefully make sure that any of those gaps are also addressed. So just a final slide to share uh, if you want to know more information about this. On the bottom, there is the website at the RCCBC website. There's also about a four or five minute video that a dear friend of ours has created. I, maybe I won't say who made it. I'll leave it to Dana maybe to share who's, who made it if she wants. But if you do want to share information about this, that's a wonderful uh, four minute video that can uh, provide you some of that information. And then we're just going to end with this slide, which really, I think, hopefully captures the essence of what we're trying to support, which is both really a process of interchange and then hopefully collective change. Thank so, you so much, Raul and Dana. Uh, we really appreciate you bringing forward your experiences and learnings and informing the team-based care conversation. And I see one already from, from Charles Lee. With a nod to Peter Hawkins, what patterns will these teams enable in the future stakeholder environment and system at large? Yeah, I don't mind uh, maybe starting and then Dan, if you have anything you want to add. I'm glad you brought that question up. And I'm a recent learner of Peter, Haw Peter Hawkins. So I first, in full transparency, his work is a little bit new to me, but um, Cecile actually knows a lot more about his work, the other physician coach. And we're trying as best we can to continue to incorporate the system at large. So even when we, for instance, do some of the co-creation work, we do a creativity strategy, for instance, where we envision as a team, we're really trying to support the stakeholders in that visioning. And so whether it's really exploring who your team is embedded within the system with, how is that going to influence all the other players that your team um, engages with, whether it's patients or other organizations, or if it's even a team within an organization within a health authority, there's so many different layers to this and, and we have to start somewhere. So it's this combination of how do we work with both a team that actually can be a prototype and actually if it's protected well, can actually influence uh, the system in wonderful ways because there's the opportunity to do things in smaller, scalable um, ways that maybe can influence the team, influence the system to a greater degree than perhaps doing something more robust. Anything you want to add to that, Dana? No, I don't think so. The only thing that comes to mind with that is just really how can that inform future stakeholders? I think it just by giving voice to everybody and really flattening, flattening hierarchies, flattening structures, that then invites more voices to, to be at the table for decision-making. A few more questions coming in. Um, someone says, I'm curious if those receiving care or their families find ways to have leadership in these leadership projects. You know, it's a great question. Dana, did you have something you want to say? I, yeah. I, I think we were probably going to say the same thing, Raul, so I'm going to trust that and you go ahead. Uh, what I was going to say, we thought about that a lot and um, we came to say little bit about even just what was being shared in the chat box with by Joanne is part of it is like we have to heal some of the 
work within the system with each other as a starting place. Uh, and some of that, a lot of the research has shown is that when that work is done, it actually does impact patients in a positive way, pretty much across the board. And yes, it's absolutely true. Those receiving care, when it comes to how their care gets rolled out, they need to have a really important voice. And our hope is that maybe even as some of these um, different teams take on some of their own team training opportunities that they could look at involving those receiving care to have a voice in there as well. But if people have some more feedback for us that way, I think it would be more than welcome. Yeah. I would just add that on our advisory team, there are some people who are community and patient voices. And I think, as Raul was saying, I think one of the things that we've invited the teams to do is to really, we've given them some evaluation tools that they can choose to, to use to get direct feedback from their, their patients about whether after this training, they feel like their teams are functioning, their, their, their care providers are functioning in a different way together. Do they notice that how their team wraps around them is different, that how their team members speak to one another is different. So trying to find that way, but yeah, again, love to hear more input on that. I think that can always be improved. I think we have time for just a couple more questions. One that's popped up that I think was worth bringing forward. How do you manage that tricky tension that can often be present between shared leadership and the role of the most responsible provider? It's a great question. It's something we've been really spending time with. And I think that's exactly why we wanted to include, first of all, have leaders involved with the training itself, whether that's the most responsible provider or somebody else. And hopefully as people come together, they have that experience of the, the control and the power that actually comes from a more distributed leadership style and how that actually does share the responsibility across the team. So I think getting away from that idea that one person has to be fully responsible, of course, there's going to be hierarchies. And so there's going to be places where one person has to make a decision, but there's lots of places where consensus and even just getting people's input can be really helpful for the leader, for the person who's actually having to make those decisions. So part of this is actually seeing if we can manage and feel some of that extra support and then therefore be okay with letting go of some of the control, which may not always be serving us in the long run. And just an answer to Donna's question that she put about what does leadership involvement look like? I think speaking to that, it, it means that the leader, whoever's in that kind of designated leadership role actually participates in the trainings. They are there with the team in the workshop, in the follow-up coaching sessions. So it's not just that they write a letter of support. They actually are part of the team and they're brought in that way for the, the creativity strategies, for developing the shared mental models. And it's facilitated in a way that really distributes the leadership in those workshops. Thank you. I see there are a couple of questions around resources, and I think that's something that we could take away and uh, provide a list of resources working with Raul and Dana in the follow-up newsletter. Just with the resources, your website actually yeah. uh, has some wonderful resources on team-based care and uh, around optimizing high-functioning teams. So yes, there's lots of resources that could be shared as well. Thank you. So we'll make sure to do that. Maybe one last question. Um, just uh, would love to learn more about a measurement plan for team-based care. And I'm not sure if there's an answer for that uh, currently, but what maybe you guys are doing for measurement because you did mention evaluation. 
you know, I'd be, I'd be a little cautious calling what we're doing here team-based care measurements because we're talking about uh, very specific aspects of this particular program. And this program is looking at some very specific elements that, yes, do honor team-based care, but it's actually more about how the team's functioning within itself. It's more about the relationships within the team rather than necessarily about the delivery where team-based care, I think, has a lot other features that need to be measured. So we might not be the best people to be asking that particular question. I I was just going to say, it might be nice to answer the question from Rhett's around in settings where physicians can't join teams in training, Mm -hmm. how do they get brought into the fold? You know, we're trying our best to be as flexible as possible. So if people are interested, if there's physicians that want to come, we'll do sessions at nighttime. You know, I don't think it's become an issue actually so much that people we can't find the right time. So if there's basically an interested community, we're going to find a way to support that community to have the people who are interested attend. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for making sure to address that question. And thank you, everybody, for being engaged in this conversation and to our speakers for their expertise. I'd just like to ask Raul or Dan if they'd like to make any sort of final comments before we close this session. Well, I guess thank you for that opportunity, Kelly. The one thing that's coming up for me and this time together has maybe affirmed is just how important it is that we meet each other as human beings. It sounds so straightforward, and yet it's so easy for us especially in the service of, of people and in a system that seems like it's got uh, forever needs, uh, it's so easy to get caught in the doing. And it often feels like it's with goodwill, and it is with goodwill. But if we aren't really attending to who we are as people and creating the environment that really fosters that healthy connection and meeting each other where we're at, it, it really does influence our experience and does actually influence the very people we're trying to serve in the first place. So thank you again for joining us all today. We really appreciate your time and thank you to our speakers for your expertise and for an engaging presentation. Stay well, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed that presentation of the Team Up webinar on high functioning teams. Hope you join us next time.